We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. And away we go, episode 157 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, October 1st, 2021, as yes, October has begun. The single best sports month of the year is underway. There is no month better than October for sports. We eventually, this month, will have the NFL, the MLB postseason, college football, the NBA, the NHL, all going on at the same time. You cannot beat that. And I'm not sure that you can beat this installment of the podcast. Oh, you can try, but I'm not sure that it's possible to defeat this installment of the pod. I have a loaded Football Friday show for you. In-depth preview of the Washington football team's game at the Atlanta Falcons will begin next segment. I'm going to talk Washington offense off some things that offensive coordinator Scott Turner said at his post-practice press conference on Thursday, including Scott on three of Washington's biggest offensive problems so far this season. I'm going to talk Washington defense off some things that defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio said at his post-practice press conference on Thursday, including Jack talking about the state of Washington's oh-so-bad defense so far this season and admitting that some players have not been playing the defense as it is supposed to be played. Special guest Evan Birchfield of the Falcoholic 
which is the SB Nation site for the Falcons. He'll take us behind enemy lines and give us a good breakdown of the Falcons, including how their rookie head coach, Arthur Smith, is doing. Arthur Smith, the son of former Washington minority owner Fred Smith, the chairman, president, and CEO of FedEx, the man who perhaps more than anyone ignited the name change. Uh, That guy's son is the Falcons head coach. Uh, Arthur Smith went to Georgetown Prep High School in Rockville, Maryland. So you've got the Arthur Smith thing going on with this game. You also have the Fabian Moreau thing going on with this game. Yeah, our old pal Fabian Moreau has been a starting corner for the Falcons in each of their first three games. And I will give you my rhyming keys for a Washington win at the Falcons. And all of that is just regarding the Washington football team at the Atlanta Falcons. Also on the show, nice win for Wahoo Wah on Thursday night. Oh, postgame, Virginia's 30-28 victory at Miami. And give you two Goldilocks picks for the weekend. Maryland versus number five Iowa in College Park on Friday night. And Navy versus UCF. In Annapolis on Saturday afternoon. Mega opportunity for the Terrapins on Friday night. I will discuss that. Uh, Also, I have an Orioles segment for you. Did you see the high level trolling that the O's engaged in on Thursday night off their 6 2 win over the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards? Magnifique. Uh, You'll also hear some key comments from Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias on Thursday, and I've got some things to say off what Mike had to say. A friendly reminder, when you have 30 seconds to kill, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that, and please write just like a one or two-sentence review saying how much you like the podcast if you haven't yet done that. Those things help out a lot. You can hit pause on your iPhone or iPad right now and do those things, and I thank you for doing those things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Dr. Muhammad in Hawaii, writes the good doctor. I think we are all frustrated by the BS that is going on with the WFT. I had felt that maybe, just maybe, Ron Rivera would bring respectability back to the franchise. I am still holding out hope that ultimately that ends up the case at the end of his tenure. However, what gets me more upset is my behavior as a fan. I spend hours on this team every week, whether it is listening to your amazing podcast or the four other DC sports podcasts, reading articles, following Twitter, and watching every Chase Young defensive snap from the past week. It brings me joy to do so because I feel like I'm a more involved fan and that somehow it will bring me closer to the game. At the end, it builds up into internalizing storylines that have been echoed all over that media. The defense will dominate. Fitzmagic will have his best season ever. The wide receiver room is deeper than ever. The offense will finally be respectable, etc. And when finally I watch the putrid three hours on Sundays, I think to myself, what gives? Why does this dumpster fire not keep pace with the storylines for months? I think maybe as fans, we get too caught up in the storylines and expect more from a team that simply is not capable of delivering. Honestly, I'm okay watching crappy football. I'm not okay watching crappy football and expecting it to get better like I'm being told it will. The whole there's too much talent here to fail storyline is getting old too. Let's just enjoy terrible football for what it is, a fun slash hilarious three-hour distraction on Sundays that lets you scream in a socially acceptable way. P.S. Keep up the excellent work. I still can't believe you have to watch the garbage four-hour Nats games 
At least your analysis keeps me informed and sane. Uh, thank you for that email, Dr. Muhammad. Uh, that cracked me up, some of what you said. Very well put, uh, what you said regarding what you and so many of us go through as Washington fans. I guess I would just say this. Right now, it's been painful watching these games. Yes, although sandwiched in between the two ugly losses was a glorious win on Thursday Night Football in Week 2. Let's not forget that. The 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field. I mean, I guess I can't speak for everyone. I love watching that game. That was a ton of fun to watch, even though, yeah, it's not like Washington was perfect in that game. Let's see where this season takes us, though. We're three games into a 17-game season at least the regular season. But let's see what ends up happening here. Remember, Washington was 1-5 last year, ended up winning the division. Yes, the division was bad. Yes, Washington only got to 7-9. But Washington played much better as the season went on. Let's see what happens this year. Let's not just slam the door shut on Washington being anything close to a good team in 2021 just yet. Now, Washington loses on Sunday at the Falcons. Uh, Then maybe we got to revisit uh, what I just said there. Email from Dr. Sabah, who is a huge Taylor Heineke fan, on the reaction to Heineke's performance in the 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills last Sunday afternoon. Right, Sabah, the Buffalo game has chapped my butt when it comes to evaluating Heineke's play. He was the only reason we had a smidgen of a chance to even be in the game. The moment was not too big for him. He converted three third downs in the first quarter, one called back due to the J.D. McKissick offensive P.I., second due to a bad spot on a completion to Logan Thomas, and the third was a first down, then Logan Thomas fumbled. How is this on Heineke? Then he throws two touchdown passes, runs for a touchdown, has three drops, one touchdown drop by Antonio Gibson, one first down conversion drop by Deami Brown, and another drop by Cam Sims. What does he, as in Heineke, have to do? As Giselle says, throw and catch the ball? And then there is the defense, full of number one draft picks that are god-awful, especially Chase Young. So far, Heineke has had a better season than Chase Young has had, but somehow Young is elite and Heineke is not the answer at quarterback. What I'm trying to say is when Heineke does good things, it comes with qualifiers. Wide receivers bailed him out on inaccurate throws despite completing 74% of his passes, great play design, etc., But when he does anything bad, it's all on him. He completed 14 of 24 passes, could have been 17 of 24, if not for three drops, 71%. I'm so frustrated. Heineke played a B-minus game at worst at Buffalo, and his so-called elite teammates played an F game. Give Heineke a chance to be Heineke. Let him make plays, not just run plays. We may have something special here. Let's give him 17 games to show us. If he isn't the answer, then we have a high draft pick to figure it out. Thanks for reading. I hope you read this and let me know your thoughts. You are the best, and I miss you a lot not being on the radio. Well, thank you very much, Sabah. I appreciate that. I actually don't miss being on the radio all that much, but I do miss talking uh, to people like you on the radio. I do miss taking like phone calls the day after a Washington football team game, you know, something like that. But uh, trust me, there is a lot about working in radio. I do not miss one bit. Uh, I promise you that. Uh, I agree with a lot of what Sabah had to say. It's so funny to me how hypercritical the Taylor Heineke deniers, the Taylor Heineke haters, the Tay-Tay haters, the taters. Uh, are of this guy. I mean, these people were just waiting for a game in which he threw multiple interceptions. He needs to be better on Sunday at the Falcons, but he was far from Washington's biggest problem in the loss 
at the Bills, you know. So, I mean, I wouldn't say he played at a B-minus level at Buffalo. I would say more like C-minus, but whatever. We're sort of splitting hairs on something like that. He was not the F that the Taylor Heineke deniers like to make Heineke to have been. But geez, Dr. Muhammad, Dr. Sabah, a lot of doctors listen to this podcast, including Dr. George Verghese, who is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. If you have questions or concerns about your skin, contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and most surgeon, and operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. And specific to skin cancer treatment, the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offers something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit MidAtlanticSkin.com. Dot com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. We're going to begin our in-depth preview of the 1-2 and two Washington football team at the 1-2 and two Atlanta Falcons Sunday afternoon at 1 by talking about Washington's offense. Offensive coordinator Scott Turner spoke on Thursday via post-practice press conference. Falcons are a bad defensive team, and so Sunday's game sets up as a nice bounce-back opportunity for Taylor Heineke, who was not at his best in that 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills last Sunday afternoon. Heineke threw two bad interceptions. Heineke had multiple near picks. Heineke committed that third quarter, second and eight, five-yard illegal forward pass penalty. Heineke led a Washington offense that went just two of 11 on third downs. Now, Heineke also did some good things, as we've discussed on the podcast this week. Here was Scott on Thursday on Taylor Heineke's performance and the loss at the Bills. You can't, you know, you can't press and they're a very good defense and they, you know, they kind of understood, you know, what the score was and um, they were playing, you know, playing soft and making you throw underneath and, you know, you just got to find completions, you know, and move the ball down the field and that's the only way you're going to try to get your way back in that game. I mean, I I read some of coaches quotes where, you know, there's no 17 point plays, you know, Um, you know, you can only score seven a possession or, you know, I guess eight if you go for two and so just, you know, he just has to make the right decision over and over again and stacking good decisions, and that's how it goes. And, and you know, it's hard because Taylor's a competitor, and, and all these guys are, and you look up at the scoreboard and you want to try to do something about it, and the way to do something about it is just to do your job consistently. And hopefully we see that on Sunday. Now, might we also finally see the debut of Curtis Samuel as a Washington player on Sunday? Samuel on Thursday practiced 
for a second consecutive day. He remains on the reserve injured list due to his groin injury, but Washington could activate him for Sunday's game. Had Curtis Samuel look at practice on Thursday. Here was Scott Turner's take. Curtis did a great job. You know, I think he did a nice job yesterday. Uh, did a little bit more today. I think he's moving around a little bit. He kind of has a little bit of spring um, in his step. So we'll, we'll uh, you know, continue to evaluate it. And, you know, coach and, and RV, our trainer and everything, they'll, you know, they'll talk through it. And ultimately, we'll, we'll see if he's ready to go. Yes, there have been a whole lot of will sees throughout this Curtis Samuel groin saga. What's it like for Scott integrating Samuel back into the offense? Uh, you know, the thing with Curtis, it's always just a Ben when he's physically ready to go. Mentally, he's a guy that really stays in it, um, and he's a really intelligent uh, player. So, you know, he can, you know, he can get back in pretty quickly. Uh, so we'll just kind of pick our spots and, and decide, you know, the things that, that, that we're going to do with him. But it's not, a bit, it's not a very big challenge, just getting him physically ready to go play. Now, Washington's injury report on Thursday featured a new name, Antonio Gibson. Uh, He did not practice on Thursday due to a shin ailment. Uh, Gibson wasn't even listed on Washington's injury report on Wednesday, so presumably this uh, shin thing happened on Wednesday. The good news is that both Brandon Sheriff and Charles Leno Jr. were full participants in practice on Thursday. Sheriff did not practice on Wednesday due to a chest ailment. Leno did not practice on Wednesday due to rest. What stood out to me as much as anything from Scott Turner's post-practice press conference on Thursday was him addressing three of Washington's biggest offensive problems so far this season. While, yes, Washington's biggest problem has been its defense, it's not like the offense has been stellar. Uh, Washington through week three, 20th in the NFL in total offense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric and 29th in the NFL in total defense per DVOA. So neither ranking was good. Uh, Biggest issue for Washington's offense so far this season is third downs. Uh, Washington through week three, dead last in the NFL in third down efficiency at 26.5%. Washington is just nine of 34 on third downs this season. That's terrible. Uh, Scott Turner on Thursday on Washington's third down struggles. Um, you know, I've, I've looked through all of them, obviously, and there's a, you know, there's a wide range of deal. We got to, you know, we got to protect the passer, which is, which has been better the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, just keep making consistent decisions. Um, you know, we've had some drop passes and then I got to do a good job personally. And, you know, really it starts with me of making sure that, you know, we're in the right type of plays in order to attack the defense um, and get those plays that are necessary. Yeah, another issue for Washington's offense so far this season has been a lack of explosive plays. Scott Turner on Thursday on trying to generate more explosive passing plays. You know, I don't think you can think like, hey, we're going to try to force bigger plays because that's when some of the things that we talked about from last week happened. Um, You know, we in the games we played, sometimes the style of team that you're playing uh, will lead to some of that you know I mean uh, I was talking about the Giants they're a team that kind of keeps everything in front of them you know Buffalo we felt like we were going to have a chance to get some big plays obviously we got the big play on the screen uh, but you know as the game went on you know they were playing with a pretty big lead they're not going to give you an explosive play um, those types of things but you know we got to throw it down the field obviously we got to protect up front um, and we just got to keep taking shots at it because that's that's how it's going to happen. And then with the quarterback, he just has to understand we take those looks. If they're not there, just get the ball, you know, get the ball checked down and we, and we can get at it again. 
Yeah, lack of explosive plays has been an issue for Washington for years. Uh, And this season was supposed to be different, right? With the free agent signings of Ryan Fitzpatrick and Curtis Samuel and the drafting of De'Ami Brown. And the big increase in explosive plays just hasn't happened yet. Uh, Of course, two of the three guys who I just mentioned are on the reserve injured list. And we should say this too, uh, Antonio Gibson in the loss at the Bills did have that spectacular explosive play. That second quarter, second and eight, 73-yard touchdown reception on which he caught the ball at about the Washington 22 and then exploded downfield, ran by multiple Bills defenders, and then did an outstanding job of plowing through Bills corner Tredavious White and diving at the front right pylon for the touchdown. And then there's this, first offensive drives of games. A lot has been made of Washington's defense in it. Each of Washington's three games this season, having a lot of touchdown on the opponent's first offensive drive. And that has been maddening, to be sure. But also true is that Washington's offense in each of Washington's three games this season has gone three and out on Washington's first offensive drive. Scott Turner on Thursday on that reality. I mean, you know, it's been three games and, you know, there's a there's a so it's not it's a small sample size. Um, and the, you know, this last game, you know, third and two, and we get a conversion and we get an offensive pass interference. You know, we, we can't put ourselves in the position to get that type of play, but you know, we got to, it was going to be a conversion 15 yard gain and, you know, you feel good about it. Um, and then, you know, so we, we can't, there's a penalty, you know, and then the next drive, we turn the ball over on a converted third down. Um, you know, back to the Giants game, you know, we had a couple opportunities that we didn't get. Um, and then the third drive, we go 90 yards and score, you know, so there's not a difference between that drive and the other one before. We just have to consistently execute. Um, you know, I got to make sure I evaluate what I'm doing and make sure I'm putting our guys in the best, in the best position, you know, to make plays, but, um, but just come out, you know, ready to play and play fast. And, you know, there. There's going to be dry. They're not always going to go great. And whether it's the first drive or the third drive or whatever, ultimately we want to, we just got to consistently move the ball and put points on the board, whatever, whatever drive it is, and not get too caught up with that. No, but a frustrating problem for Washington is the slow start. Washington consistently gets off to slow starts in games. That's been a thing for years now. And that very much has been a thing so far this season, both offensively and defensively. Well, something else that has been a thing for years now is overpaying real estate agents via commission. 6%, 7%, 8%. It's ridiculous. Well, John Grandland of Real Broker is changing the game with commission flex. Listen up if you're looking to sell your home. You know how Ron Rivera loves position flex? Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Well, John Grandland offers commission flex, flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. John Grandland will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Grandland has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandland is a total no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do. So you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. 
If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor and call John Granlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. John's a great guy, easygoing, terrific sense of humor, big Washington football team fan, but most importantly, he is a master DMV real estate agent. Call John G. now, 703-537-6747. When you talk to John Granlin, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you, and make sure that you ask John Granlin about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. See what John G. can do for you. That phone number again, 703-537-6747, or visit John G. SellsForFree.com. That's John G. SellsForFree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron. Just like Position Flex. We turn our attention now to the Washington football team's defense for Sunday afternoon's game at the Atlanta Falcons. Is this Washington defense finally going to get its act together this season? By the way, both Matt Ioannidis and Benjamin St. Juice did not practice on Thursday. Uh, Ioannidis was a limited participant in practice on Wednesday, but he did not practice on Thursday. Remember, Ioannidis missed the 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills last Sunday afternoon due to a knee. St. Juice did not practice on Thursday for a second consecutive day due to a concussion. Defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio spoke on Thursday via post-practice press conference. I was wondering what kind of a Jack we would get, what kind of a JDR we would get. Uh, He does not love doing these press conferences when things are going well. So how was he going to be with things having gone so poorly so far this season and especially coming off that blowout loss at the Bills? Well, the truth is that Jack on Thursday came off well. Uh, He took accountability For the defensive struggles, he acknowledged that certain things have not gone well. He preached everyone staying together. Hopefully, that pays off come Sunday. Falcons are a bad offensive team, have a bad offensive line. This should be a game in which the vaunted Washington defensive line actually gets consistent push and pressures and sacks. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, The defensive line has had its moments, to be fair, so far this season. And there have been individuals who have had success. Like Jonathan Allen was very good in Weeks 1 and 2. Deron Payne was very good in Week 3. But the overall body of work from this defensive line this season has been very disappointing. Jack on Thursday on Washington's defensive line, having had the expectations of being maybe the best in the NFL. I don't care about that. That doesn't hype doesn't mean anything. I, that's part of the game. We love that you all cover us, and we love that the fans are excited about it. And you can have all of your ranks and thoughts about ranks and all that that you want. And I'm I'm happy with that. It's great. It's great for the game. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a performance based business. You know, um, potential is not. That doesn't mean much. Okay. So we're about po- we're about production. We're about playing well together, and. Um, and that's, what we're, that's where our focus is, you know? And, and so what gives you a chance is, is when you have a good group of men that are working together, that are staying together, that are, that are willing to take accountability, and we'll get, it, we'll get it going. Yeah, you need to get it going. Chase Young and Montez Sweat need to get it going. 
Washington's top two edge rushers are not having the seasons that those guys are supposed to be having. The good news, of course, is that the season is still young. Uh, There's no reason that a month from now we can't be viewing the 2021 seasons for Chase Young and Montez Sweat very differently. Uh, Jack Del Rio knows high-level edge rushers. Uh, Jack, during his time as Oakland Raiders head coach, had Khalil Mack. Jack, during his time as Denver Broncos defensive coordinator, had Von Miller and Demarcus Ware. What did those guys do to help them consistently have big sack seasons? Just work. It's really work. Um, be relentless. Um, don't fret. Don't, don't worry. Just work. And, uh, and be purposeful and be urgent and uh, all those types of things. Um, and we don't want our guys stressing out. We want our guys to go hard, play hard, have fun. And, uh, and get after it. And that's, that's what we're going to get down to. Yeah, big spot for Chase Young this Sunday. He has taken a lot of criticism this week. A lot of it has been deserved. He, so far this season, has not produced as he should. Jack on Thursday got asked specifically about Chase Young and some of the technique stuff that Ron Rivera has talked about this week. Here was Jack on Chase, uh, sort of. Yeah, we're, we're coaching, you know, the things that, um, that we... we don't want to see and we're coaching looking for the things we do want to see and um you know I'm not going to refer specifically to one guy it's it's like I said it's a group we're all we're all in it we all share responsibility um we all need to be on point in carrying out our mission yes the mission which is uh not to suck at the Falcons now Chase Young also pretty clearly is one of the guys who this season has not always been playing the defense as it's supposed to be played. When Ron Rivera has talked about guys not adhering to the scheme, I do believe that Chase Young is one of those guys, and there's stuff on tape that backs that up. Jack Del Rio on Thursday on why guys freelance and deviate from the defensive scheme. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Desire to make plays, yeah. And um, we're at our best when we're all um, doing our job, you know, on point, kind of on a mission. We all have assignments within the mission and um and so it, you know it gets better and more fun when when you're on point and um when you're not it, it doesn't go quite as well so you know we're about sticking together uh, we're we're a group I, I love i love my players i love my coaches we work with really good people every day we got we got you know great energy and focus and we're just uh working hard to, to make it be better that's all you can do uh how about the high expectations for this Washington defense. What now? Jack on Thursday was asked if he is recalibrating his expectations for his defense. We don't we don't hand out trophies after three weeks. So, you know, it's uh hasn't been the start that we all wanted or even expected, but it's what it is. And we'll deal with it. Um, kind of man up, you know, take responsibility, accountability starts with me. I've made that very clear with our with our group, coaches and players. Uh, we all have to do that. We all need to be this much better, and then it gets a lot better for all of us, you know. And it's it's shared responsibility. It's it's very much accountability. Uh, and I like I said, I love my guys. I love the players and coaches that I work with every day. It's a really good group. Yeah, Jack on Thursday preached unity, which was good to hear. Uh, also preached accountability. Here was Jack on Thursday on whether there are coverage disguises that Washington still is building toward being able to do due to some of the new personnel in the secondary. 
Well, of course, of course, but uh, I'm not going to offer up. I'm not an excuse maker. I'm not going to get into trying to explain away anything. Uh, we need to play better, and we're going to focus on how and, and what we need to do for that to happen. Now, with that Washington secondary, you have a new big money corner this season in William Jackson III, and he has not had a great start to his season. Uh, here was Jack on Thursday on old WJ3, and you'll hear Jack reference a key penalty and the loss at the Bills. That late first quarter, William Jackson, the third, third and eight, eight-yard pass interference penalty and covering Bills receiver Stephon Diggs, the uh, Maryland product, who himself appeared guilty of the penalty. I thought that was a terrible call by the officials. The drive resulted in that Josh Allen early second quarter touchdown pass to running back Zach Moss. Uh, yeah, he, wa- he was interfered with last week. Uh, they called it right the first time. Um, and, uh, and Cole was interfered with as well. So those are two touchdowns you could take off the board. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I love the way he's competing. He's a competitive guy. Uh, his technique was really good last week on that particular play that, uh, that was somehow turned from what it was originally called to, you know, something that went clearly in their favor. So, um, but I, li- I like the way Will's competing. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to play good football with Will. And interesting to hear Jack unsolicited bring up the Josh Allen second quarter touchdown pass to tight end Dawson Knox, who, yes, did push off of Cole Holcomb. Look, there were some bad calls slash non-calls in the loss at the Bills, but make no mistake, Jack's defensive unit was horrible in that game. And so this is a big spot for Washington's defense at the Falcons on Sunday. Jack on Thursday on whether he has been seeing his defense truly coming together this week. That's right. That's that's what we're working at. Um, like I said, I love my guys. I love the players and coaches I work with. Uh, it's a good group, and uh, we're going to play better football as we go. So uh, I'm excited to get started this weekend. Get this get this uh, last game in our rearview mirror and move move forward. Yeah, you really can't overstate the extent to which Washington's defense needs a good performance on Sunday at the Falcons. Well, what exactly is Washington facing in the Atlanta Falcons on Sunday? A special look at the Falcons with Evan Birchfield of the Falcoholic, which is the SB Nation side for the Falcons, is coming up after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As we continue to prepare for the 1-2 Washington football team at the 1-2 Atlanta Falcons this Sunday afternoon at 1, it is time to culminate our opposition research with a special guest, Evan Birchfield of the Falcoholic, which is the SB Nation site for the Falcons, similar to what Hogs Haven is for the Washington football team. You can follow Evan on Twitter, at Evan Birchfield. Evan, it's nice to have you on. How are you? I am great, Al. I appreciate you having me on. Um, ready to talk about this exciting one and two versus one and two matchup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'd like to get your take on a bigger picture question first with the Falcons. Where are they on the win curve? Is this a rebuilding team, a retooling team, a win now team? What's the right way to frame the Falcons? Yeah, so it kind of depends on who you ask. Um, in my opinion, they are definitely a rebuilding team. And I know they got a lot of flack from especially Falcons fans in general for not taking a quarterback if they were rebuilding. Um, but necessarily, you don't have to take a quarterback to rebuild because there's, you know, the next couple of years, uh, Arthur Smith, the new head coach, he's on a five-year contract. So you can still rebuild over the next, you know, one to two years, uh, get a quarterback next year, the following year. Um, Matt Ryan's not at all like probably elite level quarterback play, um, but he's not at the level to where you're going to lose games specifically because of him. Um, they have a lot of problems offensive line wise, um, you know, receiving wise, getting rid of Julio Jones is always going to be a downgrade. Um, Kyle Pitts has obviously not hit any type of um, next level yet, and he's young and he's you know going to gain experience and stuff like that. So overall, to answer your question, I'd say definitely rebuilding. Um, although you know, marketing wise, they're never going to come out and say we're rebuilding because they still want to sell tickets. So yeah, but um, if you look at the moves they've made, if you look at the current. Um, roster it's definitely screaming uh rebuild but they still think they can be a little competitive um i wouldn't pencil them in by any means as like a playoff contender but you know they're like a 500 team um and they've got some young players who have improved and look good throughout the uh, first three games so uh, it's promising um but yeah definitely in a rebuild mode with Matt Ryan and you just spoke to some of this but where is Matt Ryan right now in his career in your opinion uh, it's it's kind of difficult to judge just because the offensive line has been so bad. Um, they played well against the Giants last week, but in the first two games, um, I, I know probably many of your listeners didn't watch them, but 
they uh, the offensive line was awful, like especially against the Eagles in Week One, just horrible. Uh, Matt Ryan had basically no time. It seemed like he'd hike the ball and instantly have somebody in his face. Uh, a lot of struggles there. So it's kind of hard to judge to answer your question, but um, I mean, I think he's still in a in a talent level where he can compete. And if this was like a more loaded roster, um, I think they could actually make a playoff push. But it just isn't. He's not the, he's not like a Patrick Mahomes type where he's going to just elevate a roster. Um, he's just not that guy. With the Falcons' offensive line, what exactly has been going wrong? So Jalen Mayfield uh, was a rookie or is a rookie form. They took him in the in the most recent draft, and he played right tackle at Michigan. Um, and they've got him playing left guard. So it's definitely been an adjustment for him. Um, Josh Andrews, who was slated to be the starter at left guard, actually broke his hand before week one. So he won an IR, and he's in that 21-day uh, window where he can return at any time. But I don't think that's happening before this weekend. So Jalen Mayfield um, is struggling on the offensive line. He, uh, he he struggled in week one against the Eagles. If you follow PFF, um, at all he had i believe it was 1.4 pass blocking grade which i honestly didn't know it could go it could go that low um he improved a little against the buccaneers and then against the giants he had his uh pass blocking grade went up to a 70 so he's definitely making some improvements but uh obviously the giants um defensive front is nowhere close to what washington has so i'm expecting a decline um but i mean you could say that for the whole falcons offensive line this weekend <laughs> Talking Washington football team at the Atlanta Falcons with Evan Birdsfield of the Falcoholic, which is the SB Nation site for the Falcons. You mentioned Kyle Pitts. How has he looked through three games? Well, uh, it's it, he's only had 17 targets, which a lot of people would expect him to have a lot more. Um, you know, he's a rookie tight end. Uh, I believe the highest ever um, with the fourth overall pick going that early. Um, so you expect him to come out and be a big part of the offense, but only 17 targets, um, which is not a whole lot. Uh, but in the moments he he's caught the ball and made an impact, he's looked really good, really explosive. Um, he's yet to score. He's only had 11 actual receptions, um, but he's averaging 12, 12, uh, 12.6 yards per reception. So he's making an impact when they get him involved. But outside of that, I mean, um, he's not a focal point in this offense. It's pretty much been more of Cordero Patterson, which surprises everyone. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about Patterson. So him and Mike Davis are the Falcons' top two running backs. How has the Falcons' running game been so far this year? Uh, well, Mike Davis is technically RB1, but because he's getting more carries and he's actually had one more target than Cordero Patterson. But if you ask any Falcons fan or anybody who's been watching the Falcons games, Cordero Patterson has been more of the focal point. Um, last week against the Giants, he was more involved when the Falcons were trying to get in the field goal range, um, obviously because of his receiving talent, but they just trust him more. Um, he's been a better pure runner. He's averaging four yards uh, per carry, while Davis is only averaging uh, 3.8. Davis has looked good, though. He's gotten more actual carries at 36 uh, this year. But, yeah, they, uh, they've they only had two running backs on the roster throughout the first um three weeks. Uh, They've got Wayne Gallman, who has been a healthy scratch every week. So they're comfortable with just these two guys. Um, Mike Davis, as I said, he does get some targets, but Cordero Patterson, 
if they get down late, he's kind of the guy. If they need some sort of like third down and long play where uh, they're going to line him up and throw him the ball, but if not, they'll bring him in and run him as a pure runner. Um, when they brought him in, I, I was expecting him to be more of an X factor where they might use him in like end arounds and he might line up the receiver, but he uh, he's been doing you know I form uh, running back plays, just normal running back plays. He's a he's a running back now, so it's uh, it's certainly something. With the Falcons' defense, I know that things weren't that bad in the 17-14 win at the New York Giants in Week 3, but major issues in Weeks 1 and 2. That season opening 32-6 home loss to the Philadelphia Eagles and then the 48-25 loss at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What's gone wrong for the Falcons defensively? They just don't have no dogs on the defensive line. Um, they, they've, you know, Having Dean Pease as defensive coordinator has definitely improved the defense, probably to the best level they've been in a couple of years. But overall, the talent just isn't there. Um, Deion Jones has been good. Uh, Grady Jarrett has been good. Isaiah Oliver, one of our corners, has stepped up after years of struggling. Um, but that defensive line is still in rough shape. Um, A.J. Terrell, he has been our best corner. He um, missed last week with a concussion, so he'll be back against Washington. Definitely um, someone to keep an eye on. Uh, Dante Fowler. You know, they signed him to a three-year deal to be kind of that big pass rusher for the Falcons, and he just hasn't been, although he's been having a better year this year. He's already got two sacks, which for Falcons is uh, is excellent. So, not, you know, there's not a whole lot there. Um, uh, Foy Luakun has been stepping up. He took over the Mike uh, linebacker role from Deion Jones, um, more of a physical linebacker. Um, but, yeah, they just – the talent overall just isn't there, unfortunately. A starting corner for the Falcons in each of Atlanta's first three games has been former Washington corner, Fabian Moreau. Uh, Fabian, with Washington, always came off like a talented guy. Never quite clicked, though, for him. He barely played for Washington last season. How has Fabian been doing for the Falcons? I think he's been looking good. Um, Last week, you know, against the Giants, I think it certainly helped that the Giants had Sterling Shepard and uh, Slayton leave the game. Um... But overall, he's been more of their corner, too, while um, Oliver slides into the slot. Uh, Terrell plays on the other side. I've liked him. Um, I don't I don't think he's going to be Pro Bowl level, and I don't really think he needs to be in this defense. But he's been serviceable, so I'm happy. Uh, he's only 27, so he's still young. Um, hopefully, they'll keep him around next year, too. And then the biggest Washington-Atlanta connection is the Falcons' first-year head coach, uh, Arthur Smith, the son of former Washington minority owner Fred Smith, the chairman, president, and CEO of FedEx. Uh, Arthur Smith went to Georgetown Prep High School in Rockville. Arthur Smith was a defensive quality control coach for Washington in 2007 and 2008. What are your impressions of Arthur Smith as Falcons head coach so far? I overall have liked him, um, obviously following what he did in Tennessee with just Derrick Henry, Ryan Tannehill's resurrection of his career. Um, it, it got everybody very excited. Um, he comes in Atlanta, and although they haven't got off to the start, you know, a lot of the fans would hope they would, um, you know, an offense struggles at times. It, it's I think he's more gaining trust in the personnel, getting to know a lot of these players. You know, pretty much all of them are new guys. Um that he hasn't coached before aside from maybe like Tajay Sharp, but that's not really an impact um, he's making. So yeah, I mean, overall I'm, I'm happy. I think the play calling definitely could do uh, be better. 
going forward. But, um, you know, seeing somebody like Kyle Pitts get more involved as he gains trust with the coaching staff would be welcomed. Um, you know, and he's still getting to know a lot of these guys. Like Matt Ryan's a veteran, but they never, you know, he never coached him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, overall, I'm happy. Um, I would love to see a little bit more. But, uh, you know, with a 1-2 and two record, uh, new coach, you know, still got to see a, a lot more going on in the season. Um, but if you ask me by, like, week 8 or 9, I'll probably give you a different answer. <laughs> so with the play calling, is it just Kyle Pitts not being involved enough? Or are there other things that you haven't liked about Arthur Smith's play calling? Yeah, I mean, I would say the play, um, not having Kyle Pitts involved, um, I, I would think when you had, even though he's a rookie, he's insanely talented, but you know, last week, for example, against the Giants, uh, Russell Gage, who remains out, but he was out of that game, and he's our wide receiver too. And you know, they—you would think uh, Calvin Ridley and Kyle Pitts would be the go-to guys. I mean, Lee Smith, who played for the Buffalo Bills, he's now on the Falcons. Thirty-four-year-old tight end actually had more uh, targets than Kyle Pitts and scored a touchdown and seemed to be more of a focal point. It's just like little stuff like that. I don't really understand. Um, But I mean, it's easy to criticize from the outside. Good deal. Well, it's good to get your insight on the Falcons, man. Looking forward to the game. Uh, Appreciate your time and continued success. Oh, I appreciate you having me on Al Um, and good luck to everybody. All right, our preparation for the 1-2 Washington football team at the 1-2 Atlanta Falcons Sunday afternoon at 1 is just about complete, and so it is time to rhyme. It is time for rhyming keys, as I will rhyme the path to victory for the Washington football team in its game at the Atlanta Falcons. These rhymes are not meant to be good. These rhymes are simply meant to make a few points, and in fact, we have a philosophy for this segment. That philosophy is the worse the rhyme, the better the time. And so here we go. Rhyming keys for Washington at Atlanta. How does Washington win this game? Let us rhyme the ways. Rhyming key number one. This is for Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Penetrate and don't deviate. The time has long since passed for Chase Young and Montez Sweat to get going this season. Chase Young, for pro football focus through week three, had a pressure percentage of just 9.2%, ranking just 71st among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. Montez Sweat, for pro football focus through week three, had a pressure percentage of just 9.3%, ranking just 69th among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. It's time for those numbers to improve. It's time for Chase Young to actually register a sack. It's time for these two to have a game during which we marvel at how good they are. Matt Ryan is in his age 36 season. He, over three games this season, has been sacked seven times. He, over three games this season, has been pressured on 24.6% of his dropbacks per sport radar. The Falcons' offensive line has been a train wreck so far this season. This isn't complicated. Pressure Matt Ryan. Hit Matt Ryan. Sack Matt Ryan. And Chase Young and Montez Sweat can do those things by winning their matchups instead of getting swallowed up as happened in the 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills last Sunday afternoon. And then there is adhering to the scheme. Uh, It has been very disturbing to me that Ron Rivera has continually brought up players on defense not 
playing the defense the way that the defense is supposed to be played. You know, there's lack of execution, and then there's insubordination. And I'm not ready to call players not adhering to the scheme insubordinate, but I'll tell you what, as this keeps happening, game in and game out, we're getting awfully close to insubordination territory. I think it's pretty clear that Chase Young is one of the guys who Ron is referring to when Ron talks about some players not adhering to the defensive scheme. And examples of Chase not abiding by the scheme now are starting to be pointed out by some people. ESPN NFL analyst Marcus Spears on ESPN's NFL Live this week crushed Washington's defensive line, called it selfish and undisciplined, pointed out multiple selfish and undisciplined moments for Chase and the loss at the Bills. Chase and Montez need to adhere to the scheme. If the defense is still bad, then we can crush the scheme and crush the coaching. But if guys aren't sticking to the scheme, if guys are deviating from the scheme, then that's on them. And so rhyming key number one for Chase Young and Montez Sweat, penetrate and don't deviate. Rhyming key number two for Washington at Atlanta, this is for Washington's secondary. Make it so that Matt Ryan is crying and not flying. You know, for all of the talk about Chase Young and Montez Sweat needing to be better, and that talk is justified, there's another Washington defensive duo that needs to be better. Washington's top two corners, William Jackson III and Kendall Fuller. William Jackson III's overall grade for pro football focus so far this season is an abysmal 49.7. PFF grades are on a scale of 0 to 100. Kendall Fuller's overall grade for pro football focus so far this season is 65.0. But take a listen to these stats for Sport Radar for opposing quarterbacks when targeting Fuller so far this season. 18 of 25 for 206 yards. Jackson and Fuller are better than this, and yet each guy has had issues. Each guy is a part of a Washington defense that through week three was next to last in the NFL in third down defense. Washington's opponents this season have converted on a staggering 58.7% of third downs. The Falcons are a bad offensive team. Falcons through week three, dead last in the NFL in total offense per football outsiders, DVOA metric. But the Falcons do have talent, right? Falcons have talented skill position players like receiver Calvin Ridley and tight end Kyle Pitts. We already have seen way too many opposing receivers have big games against Washington this season. Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Sterling Shepard, Cole Beasley, Emmanuel Sanders. Don't let Calvin Ridley join that list. Don't get got by Kyle Pitts. Don't let guys run screaming wide open, as has been the case way too often through three games. Communicate for crying out loud. That's such a basic thing, right? Why has communication been such a thing for this team? Uh, That to me has been very bizarre among the many bizarre things for this Washington defense so far this season. And so rhyming key number two. Washington secondary. Make it so that Matt Ryan is crying and not flying. And rhyming key number three. This is for Taylor Heineke. Feel swell and do well in your homecoming in the ATL. Some of you probably know this, others may not, but Taylor Heineke is from Georgia. So this game at the Falcons is a homecoming game of sorts. 
Uh, this game will be just Taylor Heineke's fifth start as an NFL quarterback regular season and postseason. He and the loss at the Bills did not have a good game for the first time over his five games, regular season and postseason as a Washington quarterback. Now, to me, it's not like Heineke was awful at the Bills. The Taylor Heineke deniers, the Taylor Heineke haters, the Tay-Tay haters, the Taters, uh, they've had a field day with Heineke's performance in Buffalo. Oh, were those people thrilled that Heineke threw those two interceptions. And no, he wasn't good enough. But to me, he was more mixed than, say, terrible, okay? He was below average. But this idea that, like, he got totally exposed in that game, uh, no, he did not. A uh, lot of talk this week about what Ron Rivera said during his day after the game Zoom press conference on Monday, that he wants Heineke to, quote, do things in more of a game manager way, end quote. All that Ron meant by that was for Heineke to make some smarter decisions, i.e. not try to force things as he did with the two interceptions at the Bills. The message was not for Heineke to go into a shell and never throw a pass more than three yards beyond the line of scrimmage again. And Heineke, judging by his post-practice press conference on Wednesday, has heard the message loud and clear and agrees with the message. Also, Ron, at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday, gave a total and complete shutdown of even the notion of benching Taylor Heineke right now in favor of Kyle Allen. And that was 100% the right answer to give. And I bring all of this up because Heineke, to me, should be feeling good. You know, should be feeling confident for Sunday at the Falcons. Ron has Heineke's back. I mean, at least for now. I know that that could change, but at least for now, Ron is supporting Taylor Heineke. You know, it's not like Heineke spit up all over himself at the Bills. And Washington has a chance to move the football at the Falcons. The Falcons through week three were 30th in the NFL in total defense per DVOA. Jalen Hurts had a big game in the Philadelphia Eagles 32-6 win at the Falcons in week one. 27-35 for 264 yards, three touchdowns and no interceptions. And he had seven carries for 62 yards. Tom Brady had a big game in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 48-25 win over the Falcons in week two. 24-36 for 276 yards, five touchdowns and no interceptions. There's no reason that Heineke can't have a big game on Sunday in his home state. And so rhyming key number three for Taylor Heineke. Hey, that right there rhymes. Feel swell and do well in your homecoming in the ATL. All right, time for a prediction for the game. The line for this game per Caesars Sportsbook as of early Friday morning, Washington minus one. Uh, Washington actually opened in most shops as a slight underdog. Look, nobody feels great about Washington right now. How could you? But if this team is going to be anything beyond a really bad team this season, Washington will win this game on Sunday. If Washington loses this game, especially if Washington loses this game and the defense is bad again, then there's no telling how bad things might get this season. Because as I talked about on Wednesday's show, episode 155, Washington's schedule stiffens big time after this game at the Falcons. The more desperate team usually wins. Washington is more desperate than the Falcons are right now. Remember, Atlanta's coming off a 17-14 walk-off win at the New York Giants in week three. And so I will take the W to the F to the T to win in the A to the T to the L. Washington 26, Falcons 20, lay the one, and may the football gods have mercy on our souls if Washington doesn't win this game. 
All right, before I give you a proper Goldilocks segment, let us talk some Wahoo which had a big win on Thursday night. Virginia improving to 3-2 and two with a 30-28 victory at Miami. The Cavaliers get to 1-2 and two in the ACC. Yeah, the Cavs were staring at an 0-3 start in the conference. Not good, obviously, but the Cavs pulled this off. Actually never trailed in the game. Cavs led in the third quarter by scores of 19-7 and 25-14. Led in the fourth quarter 30-21, and then held on for the win. Hurricanes kicker Andres Borregales missing a 33-yard field goal attempt as time expired in the fourth quarter. The kick going off the left upright. Bounce-back game for Virginia's defense, which had been awful over the previous two games, a 59-39 loss at then number 21 North Carolina on September 18th, and then a 37-17 home loss to Wake Forest last Friday night. Wahoo's defense got the job done in this game. Now, you have to say that Miami was without its starting quarterback. De'Ara King did not play due to a shoulder injury, but the Hoos did do a good job defensively overall. Uh, There were some hiccups in the second half, but the Hoos held Miami quarterback Tyler Van Dyke to just 203 yards on 29 pass attempts. That's seven yards per pass attempt, sacked him four times. Who's held the Hurricanes to just five of 15 on third downs? The Who's registered a safety, uh, had a late first quarter safety for a 9 0 lead. Who's, though, did give up two lengthy touchdown runs in the second half? Virginia's defense is still a work in progress, and Miami had a late third quarter, first and 10, 57 yard shotgun handoff touchdown run by the running back, Cameron Harris. And uh, also for Miami, a fourth quarter, third and 10, 24 yard shotgun scramble touchdown run by quarterback Tyler Van Dyke. And if you didn't watch the game, just understand Tyler Van Dyke is not some ultra fast collegiate quarterback, okay? I mean, he looked like he was running in slow motion, and yet Virginia still allowed him to score on that touchdown run. So yeah, man, I mean, it's still hard to really trust this Wahoos defense, but the Hoos defense was better and certainly was not as porous as we had seen over the previous two games. As for Cavs quarterback, Brennan Armstrong. So he actually came back down to earth. Uh, He did not throw for at least 300 yards for the first time in five games this season. He went 25 of 44 for 268 yards. That's a mere 6.09 yards per pass attempt. He had a touchdown and an interception, was sacked three times. He said during his postgame press conference late night on Thursday night that he, quote, played like crap end quote. Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far. Uh, Armstrong, though, had been really good for the most part over Virginia's first four games. He was not at that level in this game, and yet Virginia still won. That's part of why I think if you're a Wahoos fan, you feel good about this victory. I mean, Virginia needed this victory, but the fact that you can win even when Armstrong isn't at his best is key. You know, I mentioned him having a touchdown pass. The touchdown pass was a borderline miracle play. I mean, Armstrong was lucky to have that touchdown pass. It was the third quarter, second and 16, 36-yard shotgun play-action touchdown pass to receiver Dontavian Wicks on a play on which Armstrong just threw the football into a crowd of four players, two Cavaliers and two Hurricanes in the end zone, and somehow Wicks made the catch. Miami corner Marcus Clark was in the process of making a leaping catch in the end zone for an interception. But the ball ended up going off of Wicks' back multiple times as he was falling down on the end zone stomach first. The ball popped back into the air, and Wicks had the presence of mind to corral the ball with his right arm for the touchdown. It was incredible. It's the kind of thing you could not do if you planned it out and tried to do it. 
and yet this ended up happening. If you have not seen the video of this touchdown, seek it out. It's all over the internet. This was one of the more improbable touchdown plays that you'll ever see, but it happened. It was a touchdown play. It was a touchdown pass. Tremendous job by Dontavian Wicks, who's been really good for Virginia so far this season. Also good for Virginia on Thursday night was Wayne Taulapapa, uh, the Who's running back. He was back from a one-game absence caused by a concussion that was suffered in that loss at Carolina on September 18th. And Taulapapa was good, 11 carries for 62 yards and a touchdown. Uh, UVA did have a bunch more penalties, seven accepted penalties. So for UVA now, that's 27 accepted penalties over the previous three games. Have got to get that cleaned up. But a win is a win, especially on the road, especially with Virginia having been 0-2 in the ACC. Cavaliers now 1-2 in the conference. And now will not have a short week for the first time in three weeks. Next up for Virginia at Louisville on Saturday afternoon, October 9th. All right, it is that time. Goldilocks for week five of the college football season. You've heard of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. This is Goldilocks, my weekly college football picks against the spreads for Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. Cavaliers, of course, have already played in this week five. The Goldilocks record for the season is seven and six. No game for Virginia Tech this week. The Hokies are coming off a way too close for comfort game at home against Richmond. Uh, Hokies did win. They improved a 3-1, 21-10 win over Richmond at Lane Stadium in Blacksburg last Saturday afternoon. But this was a dicey performance by Tech, considering that A, Richmond is an FCS school, and B, Richmond played most of the game without starting quarterback Joe Mancuso uh, due to an injured right hand. Major questions right now about Hokies starting quarterback Braxton Burmeister, a massive game for Tech on Saturday night, October 9th, home to number nine Notre Dame at 7.30. But speaking of massive games, Goldilocks, all odds are from Caesar Sportsbook as of an early Friday morning. Goldilocks game number one, Maryland home to number five, Iowa, Friday night at eight, the Terrapins are plus three. You cannot overstate the importance of this game for head coach Mike Loxley and the Maryland football program. Maryland football has been in a bad way ever since Ralph Regan's final season as head coach, 2010. There is an excitement with this Terrapins team off a four-and-0 start and a quarterback in Talia Tungavailoa, who is playing at a very high level. This is a home game against a top-five team. Friday night, this is a chance for a true statement win by Loxley and the Terps. This is such a big opportunity for the program. Will Loxley and the Terps get the job done? Well, I know this. They can get the job done. Terps are 4-0 for the first time since 2016. Talia, as of Thursday, was number 20 among qualified quarterbacks in the FBS in ESPN's total QBR at 77.0. The Terps are loaded at receiver with the likes of Dante Dimas Jr. and Rakim Jarrett. The Terps are playing well defensively. This is not getting enough attention. Uh, Maryland, as of Thursday, 27th in the FBS in defensive efficiency per ESPN. The problem is that Iowa is elite defensively. Iowa, as of Thursday, number two in the FBS in defensive efficiency for ESPN. The Hawkeyes over a 4-0 start have allowed a total of 44 points, and two of those games were wins 
over ranked teams. 34-6 route of then number 17, Indiana, on September 4th, and a 27-17 win at then number 9, Iowa State, on September 11th. The good news is that the Hawkeyes are not a great offensive team, but that may not matter. Uh, As many of you know, I went to Maryland, class of 2001. I am very excited for this game, but I'm aware of the Terps' recent history in games like this. You can't not be aware of the Terps' recent history in games like this if you're a Maryland fan. All you need do is go back two years. Friday night, September 27th, 2019, a Maryland team that was off to a promising start, although not as promising as this current start, got demolished by then number 12 Penn State, 59-0 in College Park. The game was the ultimate reality check, the ultimate humbling, as the Iron Sheik likes to say, make him humble. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky baby, make him humble. Penn State put Maryland in the camel clutch two years ago, and that's what you fear if you're a Maryland fan Friday night against Iowa. Will this Friday night home game against a ranked Big Ten team for Maryland go down like that Friday night home game against a ranked Big Ten team for Maryland did in September 2019? I say no. At some point, Maryland is going to be good again. And this season, more and more, has felt like that time. There's no reason that the Terps can't at least keep this game close. And so give me the Turtles plus the three. Make money, money, make money, money, money. I tell you what, Snoop, huge game on Friday night in College Park. What do you think that Snoop will be doing on Friday night? Hmm, I have no idea. Uh, Goldilocks, game number two, Navy, home to UCF. Saturday afternoon at 3.30. The midshipmen are plus 16 and a half. Uh, Navy is 0-3, but at least showed a pulse last Saturday night. 28-20 loss at Houston. Uh, The midshipmen, who got outscored by combined 72-10 over the first two games of the season, were better, though not good enough. Uh, The mids blew a 17-7 halftime lead. Navy's defense was very good in the first half, but had problems in the second half. Navy had another special teams gaffe, allowing a late first quarter 73-yard punt return for a touchdown by Houston corner Marcus Jones. And Navy's offense, which had been woeful in each of the mids' first two games of the season, still wasn't very good. Uh, You know, this game was Navy's first game since firing assistant head coach, offensive coordinator, and quarterbacks coach Ivan Jasper, but then rehiring him as quarterbacks coach. Uh, But Navy in this loss at Houston last Saturday night, just 20 points, uh, an average of just 4.76 yards per play, and Navy went just 3 of 15 on third downs. Uh, Now, Navy in this game started Xavier Arline at quarterback for a second consecutive game. Uh, He finished with 19 carries for 64 yards and a touchdown. Did go 3 of 6 passing for 83 yards, no touchdowns, and no interceptions. Got sacked once. Had an early first quarter, first and 10, 40-yard under center triple option touchdown run, but Navy didn't have much happening offensively the rest of the game. Uh, And Navy had a killer early fourth quarter loss fumble on a bad exchange between our line and the center with Navy trailing by just four at 21-17. Ensuing Houston offensive drive started at the Navy 26 and resulted in a touchdown. Going to be very interesting to see what Navy does at quarterback 
for Saturday's game against UCF in Annapolis. The man who started at quarterback for Navy in its season opener, the 49-7 loss to Marshall in Annapolis on September 4th, now is healthy. Talking about Ty Lovatai, uh, he has recovered from a lower body injury. Whether he starts a quarterback against UCF, we do not know. Uh, but Navy, to me, has got to settle on a quarterback here because who the quarterback is matters a lot in the triple option offense. And Navy, when at its best over the last, say, 20 years, has had that one stud triple option quarterback, right? Think Ricky Dobbs. Think Keenan Reynolds. Think Malcolm Perry. Uh, UCF is 2-1, and one, is coming off a loss, 42-35 at Louisville on September 17th. UCF's head coach is the former Auburn head coach, Gus Malzahn. Uh, UCF's offense is pretty good, but the defense has not been that good. I would like to think that Navy found something in the improved performance in the loss at Houston last Saturday night. It's hard to see Navy being 0-4. You know that Navy athletes aren't quitters. You know that Navy players will play whatever scheme is being employed. There's not a Washington football team defense situation with a service academy school like Navy. I tell you what, give me the midshipmen plus the 16 and a half. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Yes, thank you, Snoop. So to review, Maryland plus three, Navy plus 16 and a half, your remaining Goldilocks for College Football Week 5. Well, it was 10 years ago this week that the Orioles completed one of the greatest spoiler role acts in Major League history. Then Oriole, Robert Andino, had three clutch hits in late September to beat the Boston Red Sox and ultimately help to prevent them from making the postseason. And when I say three clutch hits, I don't mean three clutch hits in one game. I mean a clutch hit in each of three games. The Orioles helped to doom the Red Sox in that 2011 season. Among the hits that Andino had, the famous walk-off single, on the final day of the regular season. It was after that season that we had major change for the Red Sox. Manager Terry Francona, gone. Executive Theo Epstein, gone. And it was that 2011 season that served as a launching pad for the O's to make the playoffs three times over the next five seasons. And so that brings us to Thursday night when we had a 6-2 Orioles win over the Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The O's end up winning two of three games in the series with the Red Sox fighting for their postseason lives in this tight American League wildcard race. And so what did the O's do after the game on Thursday night? The O's changed their Twitter avatar to a photo of Robert Andino. Oh, how sweet it is. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe Angel, they are. The O's now are 52 and 107 on the season. I tell you what, if the Red Sox end up not making the playoffs and the rebuilding and tanking Orioles once again play a role in the Red Sox not making the playoffs, that will be quite nice. And remember, the Red Sox will conclude their regular season where? At Nationals Park this weekend, Friday through Sunday. But for the O's in this win on Thursday night, another home run by Ryan Mountcastle. He went one for three with a three-run homer 
and an intentional walk. Mountcastle smashed a two-out first pitch, three-run homer to left center field into the Orioles' bullpen of Red Sox starter and actually former Nats prospect Nick Pavetta in the bottom of the third of the home run going a projected 416 feet per stat cast was Mountcastle's 33rd homer of the season, was his second homer of the series. Mountcastle and the Orioles 4-2 win over the Red Sox at Camden Yards on Tuesday night had a one-out first pitch, two-run homer on a bomb to left field in a three-run Orioles six. So the Ryan Mountcastle candidacy for American League Rookie of the Year continues. And the O's got another good start in this series. And from a lefty, uh, Alexander Wells was the Orioles' starting pitcher in this 6-2 win over the Red Sox at Camden Yards on Thursday night. Wells entered the game having allowed 31 earned runs in 36 and two-thirds innings at the Major League level this season. But Wells in this game allowed one run in six innings. Quite nice. Uh, the O's signed Wells as an amateur free agent in August 2015. This season is his age 24 season. And the O's in this series end up getting three solid starts, all from lefties. Uh, lefty Zach Lowther in the 6-0 loss to the Red Sox at Camden Yards on Wednesday night. Two runs, one earned in five innings. Lefty Bruce Zimmerman was the Orioles starting pitcher in the 4-2 win over the Red Sox at Camden Yards on Tuesday night. Zimmerman making his first appearance in a major league game since June 13th. One run, in four innings. So how do you like that? The Orioles taking it to the Red Sox in this ultra late season series at Camden Yards. I love it. Uh, also, Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias spoke to reporters on Thursday in a sort of end of season wrap-up session. Uh, no major news or anything like that, but I do want to play two cuts for you. The first is Elias on the state of the Orioles in their rebuild. Take a listen. We've kind of gotten through a, a bit of a couple of years here coming off of the end of the previous team's run where, you know, we had some contracts, we were trading guys off, you know, and so I, I do feel like we're uh, in a very healthy spot right now as an organization. It took some work to get into that spot. I feel like we're there and there we have a ton of young talent. Um, and we just need to get that talent to the major leagues and get more talented at the major league level, um, which is coming. Um, and then I, I, I do know that this will work and we will, we will get into the mix with these guys. Um, you know, I think that within our own division, um, it wasn't easy for Tampa or it wasn't quick for Tampa to get in that spot, but they proved that it is possible. Um, and they continue to, to sustain it despite the challenges that their market presents and um you know it, it, like i said it took them a, a, a while to to build that franchise up and this you know sustain it and keep it uh um there was continuity and the way that they made decisions and and kept uh bringing players into the organization was very consistent and and discipline um and it's just not an overnight thing in, in baseball so uh you know I, we uh are much farther along um than we were last year or, or two years ago in that regard and getting to our goal, which is to have uh, you know, a team that, that, that vies for playoff contention in this division on a year-in and year-out basis, but we have a ways to go. Yes, you do, but you're making progress. Understand, as much as some in the media like ESPN, MLB Insider, Buster Olney don't seem to understand this, the Orioles' rebuild is going well. The major league team is terrible. We all get that. 
But the rebuild is working. A, the O's currently have the number one farm system in baseball per MLB pipeline. B, the O's now have incredible payroll flexibility. They're locked into nothing in the way of even a decent money contract moving forward. And C, the O's have revamped their inner workings to where the team has a high-level analytics infrastructure now. Now, does any of this guarantee that the O's are going to win a World Series over the next five years? No, of course not. Uh, Notice, I do not say that the Orioles' rebuild has worked. I simply say that the Orioles' rebuild is working, as in the present tense, okay? The rebuild is in the process of working. There's a lot more that we need to see. But the idea that because the Orioles have lost 100-plus games again this season means that the Orioles' rebuild is failing is just wrong, okay? The people who say that, quite frankly, don't know what they're talking about. They either don't really follow the Orioles or those people aren't baseball fans or both. If you are an O's fan, I'm not telling you that you have to love the Major League product. How could you love the current Major League product? But what I am telling you and what I have been telling you for a while now is that the rebuild is working. Remember the Goldie mantra for the Orioles. Pain now, pleasure later. Pain now, pleasure later. The Orioles are doing exactly what the Chicago Cubs did exactly what the Houston Astros did. The concern for the Orioles is the pitching. Uh, The O's are well-equipped from a position player standpoint with Cedric Mullins, Ryan Mountcastle, and Austin Hayes at the major league level and the likes of Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson at the minor league level. And while the O's do have the consensus number one pitching prospect in the sport and Grayson Rodriguez, the O's this season also have seen a number of young pitchers struggle at the major league level. Keegan Aiken, Dean Kramer, Jorge Lopez, Bruce Zimmerman, uh, Alexander Wells, Zach Lowther, you know, all kinds of guys have had all kinds of issues throughout this season. Here was some more from Mike Elias on Thursday. We are um, very interested still and and very um, encouraged by a lot of the guys that are on this 40-man roster, even though uh, a lot of them had a lot of rough stretches in the middle of the summer. And I think we've seen some encouraging finishes for some of these guys in September, um, whether that's in the minors or in the majors. Um, So long way of saying this group, by and large, is still part of our, our future plans and there's a lot of talent here and it's not surprising Um, You know, when guys have struggles pitching in the American League East in their first year or two in the in the big leagues or that when players have like sophomore slumps in general. Um, But we're you know, we need to get more talented in a lot of areas and and pitching certainly at the top of the list. So we're going to be looking at external uh, reinforcements for sure. Yeah, I mean, the pitching remains the concern. Are the Orioles going to be able to develop enough good quality pitching? We don't know that yet. The position players certainly seem to be well ahead of the pitchers, but that can change. Of course, looming over the Orioles is the ownership uncertainty. Uh, It has been said for years that when Peter Angelos, who has been in failing health for years, does pass, uh, the Angelo Suns are likely to sell the franchise. We don't know that with certainty, but I've talked to many people who believe that to be the case. If, in fact, the Orioles are going to be sold, well, 
Uh, to whom will the Orioles be sold? What will that new ownership group be like? I mean, some people have suggested that maybe the Orioles end up being relocated. Uh, I'm not so sure about that, but, you know, given the conditions in Baltimore right now, I wouldn't entirely dismiss something like that either. But could it be that the next ownership group for the Orioles, if in fact there is going to be a next ownership group for the Orioles, comes in, spends a lot of money, and does the things that Angelos for years would not do? We'll see. We'll see. So there are a lot of questions to be answered here with the Orioles, no doubt. But in terms of what we know and what's happening right now, the rebuild is working. Uh, By the way, Elias also said that he doesn't care if the O's get the number one or number two pick in the 2022 MLB draft. Truth be told, it doesn't matter a lot. I've had some fun with the idea of the Orioles and the Arizona Diamondbacks and who can tank the best the rest of the season. Uh, The Diamondbacks did lose again late night on Thursday night, a 5-4 loss at the major league leading San Francisco Giants. So the Diamondbacks do still have the worst record in the majors at 50 and 109 now. The O's are 52 and 107. Three games left for the O's. They conclude their 2021 season this weekend with a three-game series at the Toronto Blue Jays. All right, that will do it for you and me, but just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Big show for Monday, episode 158. It'll be a Washington football team postgame show off whatever happens in Washington's game at the Atlanta Falcons, but I'll also discuss Maryland, Iowa, Navy, UCF, and the ends of the Nationals and Orioles seasons. Have a great weekend. Hail! to the burgundy and the gold. Let's get a win in the dirty, dirty, shall we? And I'll talk to you on Monday. I'm not going to refer specifically to one guy. It's, it's like I said, it's a group. We're all, we're all in it. We all share responsibility. Um, we all need to be on point in carrying out our mission.